Our parable this morning, uh, perhaps one of Jesus' most well-known stories that he told, is about uh, the command to love our neighbors, to love our neighbors as ourselves. And you know, on, on the one hand, this is uh, the biggest softball of a sermon that a pastor can hope for. To go around telling people that we should love our neighbors is probably the most easy thing that Jesus said to create buy-in for. You don't have to believe any of the rest of it about the miracles and the resurrection and the cross and sin and guilt and grace, all of that. People who don't believe any of that believe that we should try to love our neighbors. Right? I remember a conversation that I had um, with a young woman at the gym when I was living in Orlando. And it came to that point in every uh, relationship where she found out that I was a pastor and things get awkward. Um, and she said, okay, well, what kind of church do you, do you pastor? And I said, well, it's a, it's a Christian church. She said, yeah, yeah, no, but is it, is it, do y'all talk about sin and guilt and grace and the miracles and all that? And I said, well, yeah, it's a Christian church. That's what, that's what Christians talk about. And uh, she said, oh, well, you know, I grew up around that. And I'm just, you know, I'm more into the love your neighbor kind of Christianity. I'm not into the miracles and all of that. Not into the resurrection. It led me to think and, and, and to say to her, you know what, you must be a whole lot better than I am. Uh, because if you knew me, if you knew how selfish I can be, how arrogant I am, for me to spend one second of any day loving anybody takes a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle on the level of the resurrection for any selfish human heart uh, to actually turn in love and compassion and goodness on another human being. It's against our nature. It takes a miracle. If you don't believe me, uh, let's do a little thought experiment. What do you think is more likely to happen in your lifetime? Scientists, through the advances of medicine, discover a cure for cancer. Or we experience peace in the Middle East, Palestinians and Israelites living together. Which of those is more likely, do you think? Yeah, probably so. Do you think it's more likely uh, that scientists, through advances in biotechnology, would be able to cure blindness? Or that in the South, Black people and white people would learn to live together in genuine friendship and harmony without racism and prejudice. What do you think is more likely that we would uh, be able, through the advances of space technology, to send a woman alone by herself from the earth and land her safely on the, on the moon? Or that that same woman would be able to walk through downtown at night by herself and land safely at home without fear? without worrying and looking around her? Probably the first. Right? We're all aware that the ability to love our neighbor, though widely embraced, though widely accepted, is yes, we should try to do that, finds so little response of obedience from humanity that humanity, we're literally tearing our world apart out of our inability to figure out how to love our neighbors out of our inability to figure out how to love one another with genuine care and concern. And so Jesus uh, tells this story, this story that does show us that to really love our neighbors, to really love them as ourselves, takes a miracle, takes a, a change of heart that can only happen by miracle. So the story uh, goes like this. A man uh, who we're told is a lawyer comes up to Jesus to test him. Now, when we read lawyer, 
we think courtrooms, we think Morgan and Morgan, we think the back of the phone book. That's not what this kind of lawyer was. He wasn't a civic lawyer. Uh, he was a religious lawyer. He was someone who was an expert in the Old Testament and its laws and God's will for his people Israel. He was an expert in God's law. And he came to Jesus, it says, to test him. He wasn't interested so much in a genuine conversation. He wasn't really asking this question out of a genuine desire to know. He came to Jesus to seek to test him. And here's what the test was. Remember, by this time in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was starting to get quite a reputation as a teacher, as a religious teacher, as a healer. But beyond that is someone who welcomed all of the kinds of people that the religious folks of the day said were to be excluded. Prostitutes and tax collectors, Gentiles, those who were notoriously on the outside, Jesus welcomed to the inside of his inner circle. And so this lawyer came to Jesus to test him on this issue. Surely if Jesus is accepting all of these people, surely he must be lowering the standard of God's law. Right? Surely if these people are drawn to Jesus... He must be saying, well, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live your life before God and before others. Or else this, this group of people wouldn't want to follow him. And so he comes to Jesus to test Jesus. And he asks him, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this is a, a question I believe that it was a very common question. I don't, I don't think the man's asking, how do I earn my salvation? How do I live my life in a way that earns my salvation? He was an Israelite. He was a man who grew up in God's covenant. Someone who would have known that the whole of our life with God is started by God's love, right? By God's grace. But what's the life that God wants in return from us? What's the life that we're called to live before God that's acceptable to him? And so Jesus asks, Jesus has this great way of always answering a question with another question. Because he's not after answering his question, he's after kind of getting at his heart, getting at what's going on underneath the surface. So Jesus says, what is written in your law, how do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the man gives Jesus an answer that Jesus actually in other places gave himself. When Jesus was teaching and he was trying to summarize the whole Old Testament, he'd say, well, it, it comes down to this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the man answers correctly. So far, so good. They seem to be in agreement. And then verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Desiring to justify himself. What is it that's got this guy trying to justify himself? Right? If we've said that this is the most benign and generally acceptable command that you can give, love God and love your neighbor, okay, great. Sound, who doesn't want to try to do that? And yet immediately when he hears this, his wheels start spinning internally as he tries to come up with a way to justify himself. Because what he knew that we miss is that this isn't just a, a benign, vanilla command to try to be nice to people. That the call to love our neighbors as ourselves is a call to, to actually refuse to be happy and content if your neighbor is unhappy. 
to refuse to be full and satisfied if your neighbor is hungry, to refuse to have two shirts if your neighbor doesn't have one. Right? This is a call to, to so place your happiness in the happiness of your neighbor that you refuse to be happy if they're not well. And the man immediately understood this. He immediately understood that the call to, to, to love your neighbor put him in a place where he had to come up with a way to justify himself, to justify the fact that he doesn't live like that, that he doesn't love like that. And so the question that he asks is the question that I think we all ask, uh, and it's the wrong question. So who is my neighbor? So Jesus tell me, who do I have to love like that? Surely you don't mean everybody. So tell me who. Is it my own children? Right? If, it, if anybody's a parent, you know what it, it is to see a child and to immediately know. I'll never be happy if this child isn't flourishing. I would give my life for their life. I'll go hungry so that they'll be fed. I'll spend myself at any sacrifice for their well-being. So surely, you know, it, it means our children, maybe our, maybe our family, maybe our parents and our cousins and our grandparents, our extended family we're supposed to love in this way, putting our entire well-being lined up with theirs? You know, in Israel, uh, just like it is in America, most people would define this neighbor that we're supposed to love as ourselves in the, in the context of the immediate family. Maybe an Israelite would broaden it further than that to their extended family or their tribe, right? Their, their broader family, their village, they're, they're the people that they were doing life with in a communal way, the people they were identified with. What's certain that no Israelite would do is expand the circle of the neighbor beyond national Israel. Right? That the only ones who we are obligated to love in this way, to treat as this kind of neighbor, were those who were fellow Israelites. Those who were of the same nation, the same race, the same language, the same belief system. That those are our neighbors. So what, what the man's asking Jesus to do is to put boundaries up, to define for him, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love like that? And I'll just point out that the flip side of that question, right, is who is it okay for me to not love? Let's just boil down to brass tacks, Jesus. Who can I safely ignore? Who is it okay for me to hate? Who is it okay for me to at least be indifferent towards? Who is it okay for me to not align my my heart with and to not care about. And you know, we are, before we judge this guy too carefully or too harshly, we are, we all, every one of us actively do the same thing every day. We seek to label who is the neighbor, who do we have to love, who do we have to care about in a way that protects our own hearts, the way that protects our own uh, families. And we're all asking the same other question, who is it okay for us to ignore? Can I ignore people that look different than I do? Can I ignore people that believe differently than I do? Can I believe people who speak different languages and have different customs? Can I ignore people who live on the other side of town? God, tell me, who is it okay for me to ignore? And Jesus uh, reveals in this story that he tells that this is absolutely the wrong question to be asking. He refuses to answer the man's question. 
He doesn't even give him a, a bigger and better answer. He doesn't say, well, now you have to love not just Israelites, but all people. He doesn't do that. He doesn't answer the man's question. Instead, he gives him a new and better question through the story he tells. The story goes like this. A man uh, who is on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho, a notoriously dangerous road that would have gone from well above sea level down into a valley, a rocky pass that was known for having lots of place where thieves and bandits could hide out and mug somebody when they weren't expecting it. So a man on this dangerous road through a dangerous path fell into the hands of robbers and was left bleeding half dead naked on the side of the road. Two men come past him. Uh, We're told that one is a priest and one is a Levite. These are religious people. These are religious leaders. Uh, For our sakes, we could say that this is the, the local Presbyterian pastor and worship leader. That's what the priest, sorry to bring you into this. Um, but this is the, the one, one man who was a local religious leader, one man who led in the worship of the temple. They see the man by the side of the road and they pass by on the, other, on the other side. We're not told exactly why they show their indifference. Maybe it was out of fear. Maybe it was out of a commitment to their religious duties, not wanting to touch someone that would make them unclean and unable to perform their religious duties. But these are two people, the point of the story is that these are two people who should have known better. The priests and the Levites were the ones who in the temple were charged with distributing alms for the poor. These were people who part of their job was to give God's resources to those in need. And yet when it came to their own own lives, their own resources, their own safety, they skirt around the man and go the other way. But then a Samaritan... Uh, As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He bound up his wounds. He took him to an inn. This is the the punchline of Jesus' story, is that a, a man came who was a Samaritan. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans lived with a great deal of animosity between them. You can think today of the animosity that exists between Sunni and Shiite Muslims in the Middle East. Right from the outside, you look at the news stories, and you go, well, what? What's the difference, right? Don't they all believe the same stuff and they're in the same part of the world and can't they just... But to them, the differences that divide them are deep and profound. And that's the way that that the Samaritans and the Jews lived in a tight geographical area with some overlap to what they believed, but with deep and centuries-long animosity between them about the way they interpreted who God was and what he wanted for them. And so uh, the punchline of the story The average Israelite would have expected the story to go. Two religious leaders passed by, and they were too puffed up and too unaware to help. But then just a regular Israelite, a regular, humble, faithful Israelite came and solved the man's problem. But it's not that. It's this Israelite, just like them, was in a place where he required mercy from someone that he would have been deeply prejudiced against, deeply isolated from. And yet the Samaritan, not the other men, has compassion on him, and takes tangible action to love him. And so Jesus uh, finally gets around not to answering the man's question. Remember the man's question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, no, no, wrong question. Here's the right question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you see what Jesus does with the question? How he turns it? He says, neighbor isn't a definition. It's not a label that you're to go out and try to find people that fit it and people who don't. 
It's a vocation. It's an identity that you're called to take on to yourself. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, who, am I a neighbor? Will I live my life as a neighbor? One of the commentators on this parable, uh, a brilliant scholar with an unfortunate name, his name is Klein Snodgrass, kind of a weird one. He says, Jesus will not allow boundaries to be set so that people may feel that they have completed their obligation to God. Love does not have a boundary where they can say they have loved enough, nor does it permit us to choose those we will love, those who are our kind. Instead, it's about this calling. Will we be a neighbor? You know, in our lives, we all have multiple callings, right? We're called to be a Christian. Some of us are called to be husbands or wives. Some of us are called to be mothers or fathers. We have callings in the world. Some of us are called to be doctors or lawyers. Some of us are called into the business world. Some of us are called into auto repair. Some of us are called, we have different callings. But Jesus with this parable says, one of the callings, one of your highest callings is your calling to be a neighbor. To be a neighbor, someone who embraces this vocation of love towards those around you. So what can we learn in this story about what a neighbor does? You know, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't give commands. He doesn't tell us neatly, hey, here's what a neighbor does. Instead, he tells us a story. But he's clearly after some concrete actions, right? The, to be a neighbor means more than just to wish somebody well. It means more than just to have a loving heart in some kind of generic way, right? The, uh, James, in his letter, has harsh things to say about those who see someone in need and just wish them well. Right, who some, sees someone hungry and just pass by and say, hey, praying for you. Wish you all the best. It takes some kind of action, some physical action on the behalf of those with physical needs. And yet Jesus gets at it through a character. So that it's through this character formation, a heart formation, that leads to the actions of love. And so what does a neighbor have? What marks their character? First, they have the compassion to see. They have the compassion to see. You know, the, everybody in this story is seeing this man on the side of the road. The robbers saw him in all of his vulnerability. They saw him with malice. They saw him as someone who could be taken advantage of. The priest and the Levite saw him with indifference. And then the Samaritan comes and sees him with the eyes of compassion. It says he sees him and he has compassion on him. That a neighbor is one who learns to see those around them with the eyes of compassion. When they see suffering, when they see pain, when they see need, they identify with that need. They see it and are able to see it as their own suffering, their own need. They're able to identify with it with a soft heart instead of with a hard heart. You know, many uh, had this experience this week. There's been a, a civil war going on in Syria for, his, for years now. I think it's coming up on five years. There's been bombing by the Syrian government, in the, in, especially in the area of Aleppo. And to me, if I'm honest, the Syrian civil war for many years felt like a confusing conflict that I didn't understand that was a world away. And then this week, through a picture, right, there was a video and a still picture that came out of a bombing raid in Syria. You may have seen it. It was of a young boy about five years old who was covered in dust over one half of his body from this building that had been blown out and blood over the other half of his body. He, was, he, 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 he looked eerily like one of my own kids. 
And the video shows him being taken from the rubble, set in an ambulance. And if you ever, he's a little kid sitting in a big orange chair. His feet don't touch the ground. They just kind of swing there. And you see him, and he looks there, and he looks around him at all that's going on. And he takes his hand, and he wipes the blood off his face. And he looks at it, and he looks around. It's a move that I've seen my own kids do a 100 times with ketchup or spaghetti sauce or snot or whatever they have on their hand. He looks at it, and he looks around to see anyone's looking, and then he rubs it off on the chair. And then he just sits there and looks. And I found myself in seeing this little video clip. All of a sudden, it goes from being a strange war over there with people that are very unlike me, it seems, to being, oh, this is a kid. This is a kid like my kid. These are people like me who are suffering in ways that I can't possibly begin to imagine. And that's the move of compassion. It's being affected by the pain of others in such a way that you feel it, such a way that you take it on to yourself. And a neighbor learns to look on others with the eyes of compassion, willing to see them. You know, there's all kinds of things in our lives that get in the way of this. I think none more than judgmentalism. We can look at our neighbors in need and try to explain away their need, try to figure it out. Oh, well, they probably made bad choices. They probably made bad choices in their relationships and their jobs and their money. So we can become very judgmental of those in need. Right? It's easy to identify with comp in compassion with those who are affected by the flooding in Louisiana. Right? It, it wasn't there, and then it was there, and they didn't do anything about it. But among, among ourselves, with our neighbors, with those that we live life with, we can become incredibly judgmental. How can we move beyond that? How can we gain eyes of compassion? I think it starts with realizing that that's how God sees us. Right? That God sees us with the eyes of compassion. When Jesus sees us in our poverty, when he sees us in our own terrible choices, when he sees us in our own sin, he doesn't look primarily on us with the eyes of judgment. He doesn't come to us primarily with a lecture, but he comes in compassion. Right? God views his people with compassion. There's a great scene in the early chapters of Genesis where Hagar, the wife of Abraham, is left out in the wilderness weeping over God's blessing in Israel, in, a, in Abraham's relationship with Sarah. And God comes to her, and he feeds her, and he comforts her. And what does she name him? She names him, you are the God who sees me. In my poverty, in my weakness, in my loss, you are the God who sees me. You see it all, and you see it with compassion. So uh, the neighbor looks uh, because he has the compassion to see. The neighbor has the courage to cross over. The neighbor has the courage to cross over. He looks at him in compassion, and he went to him. Right? The, the priest and the Levite, when they see him, they pass by on the other side, but the, the Samaritan, the neighbor, crosses over, crosses over from his world, safe and secure on the path, into the world of the man who is bloodied and beaten and naked on the side of the road. Well, what kind of barriers is he crossing? He's crossing the boundary of safety, for one, remember, he is, he is going into an active crime scene. He is going to a place where he sees someone who's clearly been beaten and robbed and left half dead. He doesn't know if the robbers are still there. He doesn't know if they're lying in wait, waiting for somebody to come by and help, ready to pounce on them too. And so he crosses over from safety into vulnerability, into a place where he himself isn't safe. You know, safety is an incredible privilege. 
Safety is one of the privileges that we cling to most dearly in this life. Safety is a privilege that's passed on from generation to generation. Right? We all want our kids to be more safe, more secure than we are. If you live in a world of safety, it's likely because your parents did and their parents did. And they found a way to, to set you up for some type of security. Safety is one of our most cherished privileges. Right? What, Americans, we, we brag about being one of the safest countries on earth because of our, our immense power, our immense military. Safety is one of our dearest privileges, and it's one of the hardest privileges to let go of. To leave a place of safety and to identify with the vulnerable requires us to take on some of their vulnerability. Some of the most difficult pastoral counseling I've ever done, and I've done it several times, has been with Christian parents who all they've ever wanted for their kids is to live lives with God, live lives that love Jesus and that live lives of obedience to Jesus, lives that love God and their neighbor. And then when their you know, beautiful 22-year-old daughter comes to them and says, I think Jesus wants me to move to China. Or I think Jesus wants me to move to Africa. Or I think Jesus wants me to move into the inner city. All of a sudden, these parents go, wait, hold on, uh, no, can't, can't you love Jesus you know, from a nice house in a nice suburb with a nice family? Because this privilege, this safety that we earn and want to pass on, to see someone do what Jesus does, which is to voluntarily let go of safety and to identify with the vulnerable and to move towards the vulnerable requires a crossing over of the boundaries between the safe and the vulnerable. We all want safety for ourselves. And more than that, we want safety for our children. But when we don't cross over, when we don't dare to, to move into vulnerable neighborhoods and vulnerable spaces, when we try to protect our children so tightly, you know what we're actually teaching is that it's okay not to love, right? That it's okay that there, there's some people that it's okay just to ignore. So we're called to cross the boundary from safety to vulnerability. The Samaritan, as we've hinted at earlier, crossed immense barriers of culture, race, and religion to show love here. The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was so deep that at one point, Jesus' own disciples, these are men who spent every minute of every day for three years with Jesus, men that Jesus was going to build the church upon their ministry and their testimony. After they got rejected, when their message was rejected by a Samaritan village, you know what they said to Jesus? They came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, they rejected us. Do you want us to call down fire from heaven on them? Jesus, we believe that you're powerful. We believe that you command the armies of angels. Should we call in an airstrike on this Samaritan village? Because everybody knows that they're subhuman. Everybody knows that they just did what we knew they would do. They rejected the message. Is it okay for us to, call, to pray that God would smite them from the face of the earth? We know that there's, uh, there's prayers uh, from Israel in this time that we have recorded where faithful Israelites would pray, Lord, let the Samaritans have no share in your resurrection. Right? When you come back and you bring the dead to life, keep the Samaritans dead, please. We don't want to share the new heavens and the new earth with them. And so in the midst of that kind of animosity, the Samaritan crosses over, crosses over these deep, deep divisions to help 
and to love. And neighbor love always leads us to cross over boundaries of race and class and belief. I was moved by a story uh, that I heard on NPR not too long ago. There was a man uh, who, who became infamous, a man named Tamerlan uh, Sarnev. He was one of the bombers in Boston, one of the two brothers that uh, did the bombing in the Boston Marathon. For months and months and months, this was the brother that died in the police shootout after the bombing. For months and months after uh, he died, his body laid unburied because no cemetery would take him. Right? You can imagine if you're in the business of selling burial plots, you might not want to, to bury Tamerlan if, it, if you then needed to sell the plot next to him you know, the next week. But a woman uh, living far away named Martha Mullen, herself a Christian, uh, she heard a report of this, felt convicted to respond. She did research and made phone calls, finally contacting the Islamic Funeral ser uh, Service in Doswell, Virginia, so miles and miles away from Boston, to accept Tamerlan's body. In an interview on NPR, this is what she said. When asked why she did this, she said, To hear about the situation, it made me think of Jesus' words, Love your enemies. I felt that Tamerlan was being maligned, probably because he was a Muslim. And Jesus tells us to, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is not just someone who you get along with, but someone who's alien to you. If I'm going to live my faith, then I'm going to do that which is uncomfortable and not necessarily what's comfortable. I felt like it was the right thing to do, and it's important to be true to the principles of your faith. She crossed barriers to love. How do we find the compassion uh, and the courage to cross boundaries? Well, it's in realizing the barriers that God crossed to love us. Right? The, the divisions, the gaps, uh, the ditches that divide the human family, rich and poor, white and black, Jew and Gentile, Samaritan and Jew, these gaps pale in comparison to the chasm that exists. The deepest gap in all of creation is the gap between the creator and the creature. Right? God lives in inapproachable light and holiness and righteousness. Jesus lived there with the Father in perfect love from eternity past. And he was willing to cross over that chasm, to enter into the ditch of humanity's suffering and sin in order to love us, in order to identify with us, in order to be our neighbor. And that's the love that can motivate us to cross the boundaries that divide us. And then finally, the Samaritan has the, the grace to give sacrificially. He takes everything in his possession and he makes it available for the love of this, uh, this man in the ditch. He bound his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Gave the innkeeper two denarii, which is enough for several weeks of safekeeping there at the inn, and then a blank check to do anything else that was necessary. Take care of him, whatever more you spend. I'll repay you when I come back. He takes whatever he has. I've got oil and wine, I'll use it. I've got a bandage, I'll use it. I've got an animal, I'll put him on it. I've got some money, I'll take him to an inn. He takes and he gives sacrificially to help this man. Love always involves sacrifice. It always involves taking some of what's ours and giving it to another. Sacrificing some of what's been given to us for another. And so this man gives incredibly sacrificially, as we're called to for our neighbors as well. 
you know, this, this story. Uh, we've hinted at it. We will never be this kind of neighbor, this kind of neighbor who loves sacrificially until we receive the love of our neighbor Jesus, uh, the one who loves us so compassionately, so completely, so, so sacrificially, that he was willing to not only make himself vulnerable to death, but to himself die, to give himself without reservation on our behalf. That power, that experience of love is the only thing that can make us loving. You know, remember where we started. What kind of Christian are you? Are you the kind of Christian that, that you know, focuses on the, you know, the, the stuff like miracles and the cross and resurrection and guilt and forgiveness? Or the love your neighbor kind? Well, and this story tells us uh, that the only kind of Christian there is, the only kind of Christianity that's viable in our lives and in our world is the kind that weds those two things, a deep knowledge of our own poverty, our own, our own need for God's grace, and a deep commitment to love our neighbors. You know, uh, so many surveys uh, that have been done recently in the world show that the... Um, the poorer someone is, the more generous they likely are. And the more wealthy someone is, the more stingy they likely are. That's, that's counterintuitive, isn't it? We tend to think, like, if I make a little more money, then I can be a little more loving and a little more generous. If I had a little more for myself, I'd have more to give. And yet all of the studies show that that's not true. Now, of course it's true in raw dollars, right? The rich give more because they, their, their checks are larger. But in terms of a a percentage, the poor give immeasurably more than the rich. A UCLA researcher, Patricia Greenfield, did studies both on individuals and families and then on the entire country. She did something interesting. She looked at American literature uh, between 1800, the year 1800 and the year 2000. Think of how America changed in those 200 years. Think of the relative poverty of a new country to the incredible wealth that we enjoy in the 2000s. And here's what she noticed. That as we proceeded in wealth, uh, our usage of the word get went up and give went down. Words that show an individualistic orientation became more frequent. Individual, self, and unique took over. Meanwhile, words indicating a communal orientation went down. Words like giving, obliged, and belong. Studies go on to show that lower income individuals volunteer more and give more of their resources. They are more generous. And as she gets into the constructive part of her proposal, she says it's because the poor are more aware of their interdependence with others. They know that they have a need. They know that at times they need mercy from others, and so they're more willing to give. They're more aware of the interconnectedness of all of us. And so as, a human, as humans, we find ourselves in this place where the poor are very generous but don't have much to give. The rich have a lot to give but are relatively unwilling to give it. How do, we, how do we marry these two things? Well, only in Christ are we both poor and rich at the same time. Christ tells us that we're poor. We're the man in the ditch. We're a man with a need that is absolutely unsolvable. We live every day absolutely dependent on the graciousness of God. And yet we're rich. We have resources. We have treasures. We have a full inheritance in Christ. We are so deeply loved that we have love to give, so rich that we have wealth to give, that the gospel frees us to, in the midst of our poverty, in the midst of our knowledge of our need, 
to be radically generous and radically loving to our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have been loved by you in the midst of our poverty and our need. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would move our hearts, free us uh, from our own desires, our own addictions to comfort and pleasure and safety and the accumulation of stuff. Free us to be radically generous and loving. Lord, we pray that we would be good neighbors in our city. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.